Galatians, uh, Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. And reading just one verse, verse 11. Paul said, And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. Then the offense of the cross has ceased. Up until the fourth century, the cross was not the recognizable symbol of Christianity. It was a fish. And the reason was uh, very simple because there was waves of persecution during those first early centuries by the Romans against Christians. And so they devised a very simple little way uh, of recognizing each other as believers. If they weren't sure, if they met somebody, they weren't sure whether a believer or not, then they'd maybe draw a little fish with their foot on the dust or write out, scribble it on the wall. And uh, it was kind of like a, like a password, as it were, kind of a code between them so they would know who were believers and who weren't. And it was a clever little uh, way to do it because the Greek word fish, uh, the letters that make up the Greek word fish, uh, really corresponded with, with Christ. Uh, if, if those letters were transliterated into English, they would be I-C-H-T-H-U-S, ichthus. I-C-H-T-H-U-S, ichthus. And, uh, you know, they'd, they'd draw a little fish. And really what it meant was, uh, in the Greek, they'd make an acrostic with those letters, and it was Jesus Christ, Son of God, Saviour. So that's what fish meant to them, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Saviour. And you still get the little fish sign today. Uh, you know, you, you can get it really through, maybe stamped on a Bible or a little bumper sticker of something, a little ornament. In fact, the Faith Mission Christian Bookshop in Lurgan has a cafe, the Ecthus Cafe, and they've got the, the fish sign outside with those letters inside it. So that's simply what it meant. But then in the fourth century, uh, it was different because uh, August, uh, sorry, Constantine, who was the emperor at that time over the Western uh, Roman Empire, Eusebius, the historian, said that allegedly he was out about to fight a war in Italy and North Africa with his troops and he saw a great cross appear in the sky and underneath was the words, uh, in this conquer, in this conquer. And so he adopted that and after a little while then he decriminalized persecution against Christians and eventually then Christianity became the dominant religion uh, of, of the whole Roman Empire. And so this Roman instrument of death, the cross, that ever since then is everywhere, isn't it? In churches and everywhere. And it's become really uh, a very emotive thing. Very strong feelings can be attached uh, to the cross. For instance, as I speak right now, in China and various provinces, the Chinese government are tearing down crosses from all churches uh, and forbidding people to put a cross up in their own private homes. And so even after all of this time, it evokes very strong feelings. It's very precious to us, but they're very much against it. And, and ironically, in the whole Western world today, it has become a fashion icon. 
You can wear it around your neck. You can have it dangling from your ear, a little cross. Uh, who would have thought that a Roman instrument of execution would have become a fashion icon? But there you are. That's what's happened. Now, you remember in 2004, I think it was, Mel Gibson, the famous uh, Hollywood actor, uh, how that he made this movie called The Passion of the Christ. And it really was a movie about the last 12 hours of Jesus' life, uh, beginning in the Garden of Gethsemane all the way through his trial and then a little bit in the end of his resurrection. But the most of it really was the, the brutal execution, his trial and the brutal execution. And he couldn't get any studio in America to back it. Not one of the major studios would have anything to do with it. it said it's going to be a disaster, it's a flop. Because it's going to be over two hours long, it's going to be a religious movie, two hours long, and it's going to be subtitled because it's going to be in three languages, so they have to subtitle it, so they don't want to touch it. So he says, well, I'm going to do it, and he put $30 million of his own money into it, and lo and behold, it came a box office sensation, and it grossed over $600 million, and it shook Hollywood to the core because they just didn't think it would work, but it did work, and it was a very powerful movie, although there was you know, a lot of... Hollywood license theologically in it, but especially particularly the cross, it was very, 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 very brutal indeed. And so after two millenniums, the cross still evokes strong feelings and emotions. And Paul in this verse says something that's very revealing, it's very profound. He talks about the offense of the cross. Now you can understand in the first century how offensive the cross must have been to everybody but especially to the Jews. Uh, I mean, it was, the, it was the normal mode of execution by the Romans. They, they executed thousands uh, by crucifixion. That was just what they did. And it wasn't done privately. It was done publicly in the most public place they could find in a city or a town so that the most people would see this actually happening as a deterrent or to scare the population. And, uh, and so you can understand the first century, it was a great offence but in the 21st century, I mean, in our day, in this sophisticated, scientific, space-age, commerce-driven age that we live in, how could anybody possibly be offended by the cross? In, to the Jews in Paul's day, it was a scandal. Listen, 1 Corinthians 1.23, Paul says, But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block. An offense. That's what that means. In fact, the word stumbling block is scandal on, which is where we get scandal from. And so it's a scandal. And it was a scandal to the Jews because for thousands of years, they were waiting and hoping for the Messiah to come, their Messiah. And whenever Messiah would come, he would be a powerful individual. Uh, you know, he, he, would, he, would, he would be politically savvy like Solomon the king. Or he would be like David and he would, he would draw the nation together in a cohesive force that would take on the pagan Romans that had you know, inhabited their whole land and put them under subjection. And he would be a mighty prophet, of course, like Elijah. And he would do signs and wonders and miracles and even raise the dead. And he'd be, a, he'd be like Moses. He would make the people adhere to the law of God uh, through Moses. So that's their image of who Messiah would be like. But if Jesus of Nazareth, if he was supposed to be the Messiah, well, that was very, very offensive to them. If he was the anointed one, if he was going to be the Christ, if he was the consolation of Israel that Simeon said in the temple, 
If he was the one that we thought should redeem Israel as the two in the road to Emmaus hoped for. But whenever the cross came, it swept all of that away. Overnight, all of that was just scrapped because how could their Messiah, how could any Messiah allow himself to be tortured and then die a, a brutal, ignominious death upon a cross? That just, in their mind, just could not happen. They, 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 and even the thought of that was offensive to them. It offended them. If anybody even said that or suggested that, they were highly offended uh, because of that. You see, the Jews, they loved their religion. They loved their religion. They loved their temple. They, they loved the priests. They loved the sacrifices. They loved all the trappings of their religion. They loved the feast days and the holy days and the new moons and, and all of those. They loved all that. They alone uh, had the pure, unadulterated religion. They alone were one nation under God. They were the only nation on earth that had a covenant with Almighty God. In fact, they still are the only nation on earth that has a covenant with Almighty God. Paul talks about that in Romans 9, 10, 11. Listen to what it says in Luke 23, verse 35, when Jesus is being crucified. And the people looking on, and the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. I mean, they were just sneering at the very idea. They were so offended by that. And then verse 36 and 37, the soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Uh, and then one of the criminals who was crucified beside him, he blasphemed him saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. And so you can see how offensive the cross was in those days. But in spite of all the hostility, in spite of all the animosity against the cross when it was being preached and spoken, Paul didn't let up. Paul kept the cross right at the very heart of everything he preached, everywhere he went. And he knew it was going to offend people. He knew that for sure it would offend the Jews, but it never, ever stopped him preaching the cross of Jesus. Sad to say there are many churches today that has long since stopped preaching about the cross and about the blood. They do not want to offend anybody. <laughs> but Paul wasn't afraid to talk about the cross. But what, of what of today? Why should men be offended of the preaching of the cross today? Why would that raise the hackles of modern man? Why is this age we live in, people so offended by the cross? What is it about the message that stings a man or a woman when you preach about the cross of Christ. Well, man is a religious being. In spite of what all the atheists say, man is, at heart, a religious being. You know, Solomon in Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has put eternity in our hearts. We cannot escape it. We will worship. Whether you're an atheist or not, you will worship. You will find something or someone to worship it's inescapable because there's something of eternity in your heart. There's something that draws us to worship. And Paul says in Romans 1, if we do not worship the creator, we'll worship the creation. But we'll worship, no question about that, because there's a religious dimension to every human being. It's there. We're born with it. 
What about the religious man? The religious man loves the trappings of religion, doesn't he? He really loves the trappings of religion. And in his mind, he feels that if, if I can just fulfill everything in my religion, if I can do all the rules and all the rituals and all the regulations, if, if I can do my very best to fulfill all of them, then surely that will be enough for God. God will be pleased and he'll favor me if I do all those things. And it's amazing the stuff that religion puts on men to do. It really is. Puts them in bondage. I mean, even in Jesus' day, the scribes and the Pharisees, they kept putting more stuff, more burdens on the people religiously that they couldn't bear them. But they were made to try to keep them up. This will please God. This, you'll get God's favor if you do this, 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 and this. And what about self-righteous man? Well, he already feels he's good enough. I mean, he, he's just good enough. I mean, he, he, he tries to be honest. He tries to be honorable in life. He tries to be decent. And I mean, uh, if, if he does all of that, well, surely not even God would condemn a man if he does all of that. Surely, surely that would be a blessing. Surely God would be pleased with all of that. A self-righteous man. He feels he's as good or better than most people. And surely God would be happy if, he's, if he lived like that. But the message of the cross cuts across all that thinking. The message of the cross says you can never be good enough. That all your righteousness are as filthy rags in God's sight. The cross says you're a sinner and you can't do anything to save yourself. The cross says there is none righteous, there is no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And James says, regarding the law, even if you offend just in one point, God will hold you guilty as if you broke all of the law. So that's such a high, holy standard. Ah, the cross offends people. Top Lady's old hymn says it all, doesn't it? Not the labor of my hands can fulfill my law's demands. Could my zeal no respite? No. Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. There's only one way, isn't there? And that's through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The cross means you're not good enough. That you can't do enough. That you haven't got enough. That you'll never be enough. And that leaves us with only one option, to turn to Christ. Amen. And that's what God wants every man and every woman to do. To get us to realize that there's absolutely nothing we can do to save ourselves. We can't be our own savior. We can't be our own justifier. And this is why the cross offends and stumbles people. Because we want to save ourselves. We want to justify ourselves. We want to live how we want to live and feel that God will be pleased with that. But he won't be. What pleases God is when we come to Christ, when we accept his son, when we embrace the cross. That's what pleases the heart of God. And so we come to realize that we cannot fix ourselves. And so God says through the cross, you deserve to die for your sins. You deserve to die in your sins. But I have sent my son to die for you in your place so that you can be free. What could be a better message than that? But you see, we get offended. Man gets offended when you preach the cross because it shows them that you can never be enough, you can never do enough, you can never have enough. No matter what you do, will never be enough to satisfy God 
only until you come to his son, Jesus Christ, and embrace the cross and accept him. Then and only then will you begin to please the heart of God. The death of Christ on the cross accomplished many, many great things. Not least of which was that it gave mankind an opportunity to meet with God in a way that he never could before. Now, let me explain that. Any man in Israel could pray to God. They could pray to God at home. They could pray to God as they're out cutting the barley in the fields. They prayed to God as they walked along the roadway. That's fine. And, and from time to time, God would break through and into their lives. There'd be special moments when he'd appear and do things. Wonderful. But by and large, for the most part, when it came to, if I could put it this way, and you'll understand, when it came to going to church, when it came to corporately meeting together, when it came to those times either at the tabernacle in the wilderness or later on in the temple in Jerusalem, that's what I mean by going to church. You understand what I'm saying by that. In those times, it was different because you could only come in a very strict, prescribed way, sent down under the law of Moses. And you just couldn't just come whatever way you wanted, whatever time you wanted. There were set times, set days, set occasions, and feast days, and all the rest of it. In fact, there were three times a year when every man in Israel had to come to Jerusalem for the feast. So, so it was set, and it was prescribed, and it had to be done a certain way at a certain time. And you had to bring a sacrifice, and you had to have an intermediary, like a priest, who would offer up your sacrifice. And even after you had done all of that, even after you fulfilled all of that to the letter, you still couldn't go into the very place where the presence of God was, into the holiest of holies. You just could not do it. Only the high priest, and only once a year, and only after he had made a sacrifice for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, only then even could he go into the holiest holies where the Shekinah glory of God was. He was the only one who could do that. And so God was putting... Uh, a division between himself, a holy God, and sinful man. There was a gulf between a holy God and a sinful man. God was keeping man at a distance. And he could only approach God in his terms. Do you remember the incident where the Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant? And it came time for the Israelites to go and get with David and get it back again and bring it back to Jerusalem. And how they put it on an ox cart which was the wrong thing to do. They should have carried it on their shoulders and staves the way it was in the, uh, under the law of Moses. But they didn't. And they were so keen to get it back. So they put it on a new ox cart. And as the oxen went along and stumbled, a couple of men put their hands up to stop it from shaking. And they were smitten, struck dead in the spot. And it frightened the life out of David. It scared the living daylights out of the man. He couldn't believe that happened. But you see, God had a prescribed way. And God was saying, my way is the only way. You cannot do it anyway. You've got to do it my way. And so they learned that lesson. Later on, they did go back and they did do it right. There's great rejoicing. So it was dangerous just to approach God any way you wanted. Remember Mount Sinai when Moses was receiving the law and there was thunder and lightning and fire and shaking and earthquakes and all the rest of it. Even the very cattle couldn't go near the mountain or they'd be struck dead. 
So it was a fearful thing just to decide, well, I just want to barge into the tabernacle and I just want to go into that place where that high priest goes. He did that. At the, yeah, your life was on the line if he did something like that. But the reason was simple. It was a holy God keeping the distance from a sinful man. But God didn't want that to be like that forever. God's heart really was that he wanted man to come into his presence, to be near him, to have a personal, close relationship with him. And so something was going to have to change. God could still meet with man in a very limited way, but God wanted man not to be at arm's length. He wanted him to be close and to meet with him. But something was going to have to change. This business of the tabernacle and the temple and the priests and the sacrifices and the rituals and the rites and all of that was going to have to go away. But how would that happen? How would that become a reality? Well, God was going to send his son, wasn't he? The Lord Jesus. And he was going to replace all of that. All of it. He was going to replace and so then there'd only be one way, and that would be through his son. And it would be for every man. So through his son, every man could come into God's holy presence. Without all of those rituals, without all of the priests as intermediaries, without bringing those animal sacrifices, without all that animal blood being shed, without those special days, they could come at any moment into God's presence through his son, the Lord Jesus. And in fact, in, in Hebrews chapter 9, and verse 11, but Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. And then in chapter 7 of, of Hebrews, and verse uh, 26, for such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, then for the people's, for this he did once for all, as he offered up himself. You see, all of those sacrifices, all of those rituals, all of that business of having to go in the day of atonement, and the priest having to go into the high priest having to go into the holy soul, all of that had to be done every year, because it didn't deal with their sin problem, it didn't even deal with their conscience. And every year they kept sinning and sinning and sinning and sinning. And every year they had to get their sin covered for another year. And then the next year they had to have the whole thing all over again. And God says, "No, the time has come when that stopped. No more. There's going to be one." He's going to be the sacrifice for your sins. And not as he only going to be the sacrifice for your sins as the Lamb of God, but he's going to be the high priest for you. <laughs> Amen. And then again back to Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11 onwards. But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. 
For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer and the sprinkling of the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant and those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. And so Christ came and he became our sin offering and he became our high priest to offer himself as the offering unto God. And from that moment onwards, all of that traditions and rituals and ceremonies and special, all of that was done away with. And now there's just one way. God made it so simple that every man on earth could come through his son, whether Jew or Gentile, or sinner or saint, every man could come through and only through his son, the Lord Jesus. So he became the sacrifice. Behold, John said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, not just the Jews, but of the world. In Hebrews 8 and 5, it talks about the tabernacle and there the temple on earth was just a copy of the true sanctuary in heaven, the place where Christ ministers in all things relating to our redemption on earth. So he is the place where we meet. He is the ground where we meet. Nowhere else. So he became the place where sinful man can meet with a holy God. Glory to God. And if we own him as our Lord and our Savior, from that moment onwards, we have an audience with Almighty God through his Son without all of those rituals. Thank God. Thank God that all of that was done away. We never could have kept that up in a million years. But now it's so easy for us. And sometimes it's so easy that we forget the price that was paid to make it easy for us. It wasn't easy for Christ. It wasn't easy for the Father giving up his only Son. I mean, he gave all that heaven could afford and more through his son. So it wasn't easy, but it's simple for us to come into God's holy presence. Matthew 27, 51, it says, Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This signified that the way into the holiest of holies was now open. <laughs> Do you know that? high priest was the envy of every man in Israel. He was the envy of every man in Israel. Can you imagine you're an Israelite and you serve the one true and living God but you never ever could go into his presence? He wouldn't allow you. And even if you were a priest, even if you were a priest, out of all the men of Israel, if you were chosen as a priest, even you could not go into the holiest of holies. You couldn't even do that as a priest. Only that one man and only once a year. So he was the envy of every man of Israel to get to do that, to go in where the Shekinah glory of God was. Nobody else could go in there and even see that or feel that or experience that. But whenever that veil in the temple was rent in two from top to bottom, signifying the way now was in, for us to go into the presence of Almighty God. And Christ's body was the veil. 
His body was the veil. In Hebrews 10, 19 and 22, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and a living way which he consecrated for us, that through the veil, that is his flesh. Notice that. By a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh and having a high priest over the house of God let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Hmm. That tabernacle in the wilderness, the temple in Jerusalem later on, particularly that had the holy place, the most holy place, Everything about that symbolized Christ. Everything. If you, if you take the tabernacle of the wilderness, right? And I wouldn't have time today to, to, to go into every detail. I mean, that, that's a whole Bible study on its own. That's a fabulous Bible study, actually. Because every piece of cloth, every piece of metal, every piece of wood, everything speaks of Christ. All of it. And it was a rectangular, they called it the tent but actually it just had sides. Can you imagine sides of tents with poles all the way around? And one door. And you go in that door, then way up at the end of the tent was another rectangular tent with sides and a covering. And that was the holy place and the most holy place. And all of this speaks of Christ. So when you would go in, if, if you were an Israelite and you brought your sacrifice on a special day, you would get to the door where the brazen altar was. And the brazen altar was made of, of acacia wood and it had brass horns, one on each corner, and that's where they tied the animal sacrifice to. And, and, and you, that's as far as you would get as an Israelite. You could see that animal being sacrificed on your behalf. And that speaks of Christ. The brazen altar speaks of Christ shedding his blood, giving his life as a sacrifice for us. And then a little further in, straight ahead, a little further in was the lever, the brazen lever, the brass lever. And the brass lever was made of the, the looking glasses of the woman. They didn't, in those days, in time of the tabernacle, they didn't have glass, but they had brass, which they shined up to look at themselves. And, and the lever was a place where the priests washed their hands and their feet. They did their ablutions there as they went about their, their business, their holy business in the, in the tabernacle. And so the, the labor speaks of Christ uh, as being the word of God. Now, he was the word made flesh, but we have the word, the written word of God now, but he was the word made flesh. And uh, friends, the apostle Paul in Romans 3, 20, he said, so by the law is the knowledge of sin. When we look into the law, then we have the knowledge of sin. It's like a looking glass. And, 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 and the book of James even puts it more succinctly. And James 1, it says, For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, him being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. So James says the word is like a mirror that you look into but he says, if you're, if you're not a doer of the word, if, you're, if you only are here and not a doer, he says, you look into it, then you'll go away and you forget what you look like. 
then you come back and then you look again and then you go away and forget what you look like. But if you look in and you become a doer of the word, then it changes you. You do what God says and it makes all of the difference. That was a labor to wash. Uh, and the word of God washes us. Now we know the blood of Christ washes us from all of our sins whenever we get saved initially. But as you go through life, then you pick up sometimes the, the dirt of life. You get tainted by the stuff of this life, right? You remember in the upper room, whenever Jesus went to wash the feet of the disciples, and he came to Peter, and Peter says, no, no, he says, no, no, never, Lord, you're never going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, if you don't let me wash your feet, he says, you have no part of me. Then Peter being <laughs> the extremist, he says, well, not, not just my feet, all of me. You'll wash all of me. He says, no, you don't need that. He says, you were washed before you came. It's just your feet get dusty along the way. And so we don't need saved all over again. We've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, but our feet gets dusty along the way with the stuff of this life. So we look into the Word of God and it washes us clean. <laughs> Jesus said in John 17 and 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy Word is truth. Psalm 119 and 9. Wherewith shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word? Paul speaking of us being the bride of Christ in, in, in Ephesians 5:26, that he may sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word. John 15 and 3. Now you're clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. So the labor speaks of Christ being the, the word. All right. Then you go further and you come into the holy place. And to the right in the holy place is the table of showbread, the 12 loaves of bread, because Christ is the bread of life. He's the manna that came from heaven that we feast on, that sustains us. And then to the left is the, the great seven-branch candlestick, the big candelabra. It was filled with oil that burned continually. So Christ is the light of the world. All this speaks of Christ. And then straight ahead, right before us, is the golden altar of incense, where the incense was burned and the smoke rose up, signifying prayer. Christ is our intercessor who prays for us. He said to Peter, he says, listen, I have prayed for you that your faith does not fail. And he's praying for us all the time. It's lovely when somebody says, brother, sister, I'm praying for you. Wonderful. But Christ is praying for us too. And then there's the veil. The veil. And we've already seen that the veil speaks of his body, which was torn, which was ripped for us, that we may enter. And when you go into the holiest of holies, then there is that beautiful art of the covenant. And it's wood, acacia wood, covered inside and outside with gold. You know, gold in the Bible speaks of divinity and the wood speaks of humanity. And Christ was divine and human at the same time, wasn't he? And then the lid, or the, or the seat as it was called, the lid was made of pure gold. It was called the mercy seat. Actually, it wasn't to sit on. The truth was there was no seat in the tabernacle because the priest's work was never done. It was never done. He had to keep going all the time. But Christ, after he completed his work, when he finished his work, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. And so there's the ark with the mercy seat and the law 
the tablets with stone inside and Aaron's rod that bought it in the manor. Haven't time to go into all of that. But there's the two cherubims, the gold cherubims. They're looking down at the mercy seat that covers the broken law. <laughs> all of this speaks of Christ, doesn't it? And the place where God's presence is with the kind of glory of God is. All of this speaks of Christ. And in fact, if you were, if you were up above that looking down, it's the perfect shape of a cross. I mean, there's the lever. Sorry, there's, the, there's the, the brazen altar. There's the lever. And then on ahead, there's the golden altar of incense. And then on ahead, there's the, the Ark of the Covenant. But in the holy place to the left, there's the, the great candelabra. To the right is the table of showbread. So it's a perfect cross. All of that foreshadowing what Christ would do for us on the cross. The Old Testament is wonderful. And when you read that in Exodus and places in Leviticus, you get bored. You say it's boring. It's not boring. It's only boring we don't understand it. But when you see it speaks of Christ, then it comes alive to you. Glory to God. Amen? And so, Paul says then, as the offense of the cross ceased. Close with this. Ephesians 3, 11 and 12, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. See, those Israelites, they didn't have any access. So they couldn't come with any confidence or boldness. They couldn't. But we can. We can come with boldness and confidence because we have access into God's presence through his son. Ephesians 2.13 But now in Christ Jesus you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So he is the place where we meet with God. He is the purpose that we meet with God. He is the power of God whenever we meet with God. So isn't the cross wonderful? Isn't it wonderful? And yet people are offended by the cross. Because the cross says you're not good enough, you can't do enough, you'll never be enough, you never have enough. Just accept my son, he's done it all, he is enough, he has it all, he's done it all. Just receive him, embrace him, embrace his work on the cross, and you'll become my child. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks today for your wonderful cross. We thank you, Lord, that you suffered on that cross. You paid the penalty for our sins on that cross. He died that we might live. He paid the price that we might be forgiven. And so we thank you that the Holy Spirit came and convicted us and drew us to yourself and we embraced your work on the cross. So we thank you for this new life that you have imparted to each of us as believers today. We thank you for the gift of life, the very Zoe life of God that is in us today by your Holy Spirit simply because we came to the foot of the cross and we said, thank you, Lord, for dying for me. So we bless you and we give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.